Good morning, y'all. Hear the word of God from Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer dependent on the promise, but in God and his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise had referred come, had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Mic on, mic good? Wow, don't use one of these too often. Let me get my uh, stopwatch out here because, you know, we don't, we don't want to be here all day. Um, well, good morning, church. Uh, as you can probably see, if you're observant, Jay Hogue, hey man. Um, you're like, well, this guy's not Lawrence or Danny or Eric, correct? I'm not. Uh, so my name is Ben Uthie, in case you don't know me. I'm actually a pastoral intern uh, here at the church. Uh, I work full-time with a college ministry called Campus Outreach, and I uh, serve on both UNC's campus and Campbell's campus, just helping to share the gospel with college students and hopefully disciple them to do the same. I'm also in seminary pursuing a Master's of Divinity and hopefully one day pastoring the church. That, that would be the end goal. Um, so... Anyway, my family and I, I think I got a picture of them. Boom. Oh, great picture. I had another one. Lace, did you change that? Wow. Okay. There you go. Um, but uh, so my wife, Lacey, um, is there, obviously. Our daughter, Ruth, is two years old. If you have young kids, she's probably run up to them and tried to tackle them. It's just her saying hello. Uh, we're working on it. And then son, Roman, is about to turn one here in a couple weeks. So we got a wild house, but a good house. Um, but yeah, that's the, uh, that's the family. And we've been coming here for about a year now, um, which is just a testament to how incredible this church has been. Because pretty shortly after Lawrence and some of the other pastors picked up, hey, this guy's in seminary. Hey, he wants to plant a church one day. They almost immediately were like, let's create an internship for him. Uh, and the word create. Yeah, like I don't, I don't think it existed before. Uh, they created it. Um, and so me being here this morning is part of that internship. They wanted to give me a chance to speak in front of you guys. Um, we did a lot of stuff last semester as well. But so just want to say thank you to, to you guys, to the elders, to anybody who had to sign off on me being up here. <laughs> I, I'm sure there was maybe a vote or something. Um, but I made it, I guess. Um, <laughs> But it, it really is, it's a, it's a special morning for me. 
We're trying not to get emotional. Because, man, I see, I'm not much of a crier. Lacey's kind of the crier in the family, you know. She takes on that role. But uh, what I'm trying to say is this. I've been thinking about pastoring for probably about 10 years. I've been a believer for about 10 years. And pretty much immediately, I was like, man, I, I want to pastor. I just, that's what I want to do with my life. And I've been doing the college ministry thing. I've been able to speak, you know, hundreds of times to college students, and they're, they're great. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not a church. You know, I'm not their pastor. Uh, we're not necessarily exegeting scripture. Uh, you know, more or less, I'm just giving gospel presentations or what have you. Um, so all that to say, it's just, this is hopefully the first of many <laughs> sermons that I will give throughout the course of my ministry. And whew, just thank you guys. Appreciate it. Anyway, all that stuff's out of the way. Now you know who I am. I um, want to begin with a question to the Mary folks out there. Does anyone have a habit of losing their wedding ring? You can answer. It's okay. You can talk back. I do. Okay? So I have a fear of, okay, if I'm washing the dishes or if I'm you know, taking a shower or whatever, like, man, it's just going to come off in the shower. It's going to go down the drain. I'm going I'm to you know, lose it. So I, I said it someplace nice, secure, I know where it is, you know, it's, it's perfect. Now, sometimes I forget where it is. In particular, there was one time where I forgot where it was for a while, for a, a long while, to the point where Lacey had to maybe get me another one, okay? We're still not sure where it is. Um, but for, for, for the sake of our time this morning for the sake of the analogy, I want you guys to consider that you bumped into me in that time period when I didn't have my wedding ring on. Okay, so I, I enjoy coffee, I like bean traders. So let's say we're at bean traders, you know, you bump into me and I, and I don't have my wedding ring on. And you were to just come up to me and go, Ben, you're not married anymore. Wow, like, you want me to get you a cup of coffee? Like, tough week, you know, what's going on? Um, you know, I, I think I initially would go, man, like, and I, hopefully I go, oh, okay, well, I don't have the wedding ring. You know, maybe I give you the benefit of the doubt. You know, hopefully I'm a nice guy. But I also would probably think in my head, that's a, that's a pretty bold jump you just made. You know, to not see me with the wedding ring, to go all the way that I'm no longer married, that my marriage is all of a sudden dissolved because, in case you don't know, you know, maybe you're just like, people wear wedding rings. Wedding rings are a sign of a covenant. Okay, they're a sign of the covenant that you enter into with your spouse and before God on your wedding day, right? It's meant to tell the world and to your spouse, hey, I'm, I'm taken, I'm, I'm married, I'm a part of a covenant with someone else. And so again, it, it would be pretty crazy for you to go, okay, I, Ben, I, I know in my case, Lacey and I entered into a covenant March 24th, 2018, that's when we got married. And for you to go, okay, the, the covenant's off, the, what happened in 2018 no longer applies, you know, it, it never happened because I don't see this at Bean Traders. Again, I, 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 think, I don't think anyone in here would go, yeah, that logic holds up. You know, that, that makes sense. Now, why do I share that? Because yes, a wedding ring is a sign of a covenant, right? It's meant to point to a real relationship that I really have with my wife, Lacey. But if I don't have the sign of that, doesn't mean the relationship's off. Right? doesn't mean it's over. Galatians, our book this morning, it, it has to deal with that issue a lot. How can you know that you have a relationship with God? 
Do you have the sign of the covenant? Have you followed the Mosaic law? Have you done these things to prove your validity of your relationship with God? So that's, that's what's going on in our book. I know a lot of you, if you are regular Waypoint attenders, we've obviously been preaching through, <coughs> excuse me, preaching through this book. So you're you know, hopefully pretty familiar with the context. At least hopefully you've been you know, engaging in the sermons. Uh, but for any of those you know, who maybe just came to hear me, which thank you if you did, I appreciate that. Or even if you're just like, man, I'm, I'm not super familiar with Galatians. I don't really know what's going on. I'll give you a quick you know, kind of summary, get you up to speed so that, uh, you know, because I don't know if you guys noticed, but 15 through 22, it's, it's a little bit of a difficult text. You know, it's dealing with Abraham, his covenant, the Mosaic law, and you're kind of like, Dude, what are you talking about? Okay, I'm going to make it plain, hopefully. Um, but anyway, the church in Galatia was dealing with these people who would come into the church, false teachers, scholars commonly, call them Judaizers, who essentially were adding to the gospel. Okay, that's a phrase we've used here at the church last couple sermons. But essentially this idea of faith in Jesus is not enough to save you. Okay, you need to follow that up with obeying the Mosaic Covenant. You need to follow that up with, in their case, uh, circumcision and proving that you truly were a part of the family of God. Paul, however, throughout his ministry and elsewhere in the Gospels, he's clearly preaching salvation is all about faith. It's not about works. It's, it's about you trusting in Jesus Christ. It's not about what you can do. It's what he's done. So Galatians comes at a time when the church is going, well, who's right? These people are saying this, they, it seems like they got a pretty good argument. You know, they're quoting Genesis, they're quoting Exodus. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. It's not a result of works. So, again, that's kind of the context of Galatians. And really, for our time, I just got two questions that I want us to address. They're the questions Paul brings up in the text. So the first question is this. There you go. How does someone enter into this covenant? Okay, this, this covenant in verse 15 is mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant. Again, I'll unpack hopefully what that means. But really, all that's asking is this. How does someone become a Christian? Okay, don't want you to get caught up in the Christianese there. That's all it's asking. How do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you have a relationship with God? I don't see the wedding ring, okay? Number two, and those are verses 15 through 18, okay? It is question one. And then question two is 19 through 22, the remainder of the text. And then it's, well, What's the purpose of the law then in the life of a Christian? How, how are we to think about that? So that's where we're going. So first question, how does someone enter into this covenant? Well, first, again, let's address what's, what's even this covenant that they're talking about, right? I don't just want to assume all of you immediately know what that means. Uh, so it's referring to the covenant God made with Abraham, which can be found in Genesis 12, um, also later expanded on in Genesis 15, but I should have Genesis 12 on the screen for you guys coming up soon. But I'll go ahead and read it. And just so you know, everything that I'm doing from uh, the text is from the ESV, English Standard Version. You, you heard the NIV read uh, right before I came up, which it's great, you know, nothing wrong with that translation. But just know, as we go through the text, you might be a little like, wait, isn't that... So yes, I'm, I'm coming from the ESV, the slides are ESV. And certainly, if you guys have a copy of Scripture, I would encourage you to open up to Galatians 3, 15 through 22, because we're going to be referring to it a lot. We're going to be there. So anyway, this is what is going on. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, who will later become Abraham, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, God is giving a land or an inheritance to Abram. And from his lineage, from his offspring, from his children, there's going to be this great nation that's supposed to bless all the families of the earth. So the core question at stake in our passage very simply is this. Who are his offspring? Who are those people? that are recipients of Genesis 12, who are the people that from his lineage are going to bless the families of the earth. That's all that's going on in our passage. They're trying to answer that very question. And again, when, when, when I'm using this language of how do you enter into this covenant, really I'm asking, how do you become a Christian? Okay, Because entering into the covenant, that would have just meant you're a child of God. You're in the family. You're his son. You're his daughter. Um, so again, for us, Maybe helpful for you to hear that. So, Paul answers the question, okay? Just a few verses earlier, Danny preached on this last week. Genesis 3, 7 through 9, answers the question, how do you enter into the covenant? How do you know if you're a child of Abraham? So that should also be on the screen for you soon. Let me go ahead and read it. Again, this is literally just a couple verses up from where we're at. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. I'm going to emphasize a certain word. Let's, let's see if you guys can pick up what it is. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He quotes Genesis 12. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, he's a man of faith. Okay, literally Paul quotes Genesis 12, didn't say anything about following the Mosaic law. Clearly it has everything to do with faith, right? I mean, it's three sentences, four times the word faith is used. You don't need your PhD in English literature to know. He's probably trying to emphasize something there, right? He's probably trying to make a point that faith is a pretty big deal. So a lot of confusion, again, came from the Judaizers and Paul and picking up well, who are the people of this great nation? Are, are, who are the offspring? The NIV uses the word seed. So go to verse 16, and he'll unpack that. So he says, again, this is ESV. Now the promises were made to Abraham. So Genesis 12, okay, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or again, or seed. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to you, your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul is clearly viewing this through the lens of Jesus Christ. That he is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the one from Abraham through whom the nations are going to be blessed. Okay, and the Greek word here for seed or offspring, it's a collective noun, which is singular in form, plural in meaning. What does that mean? So, for instance, like our term people, okay? Our term people is singular, correct? Peoples would be the plural. But if I say there will be people at church, and if Lawrence would be like, Ben, you're a liar. There's more than one person at church. You know, it's like, well, well yeah, and it, it implies, you know, more than one, right? And so in the Old Testament, there's that language is used of the seed of David or the seed of Isaac. And again, you, you don't read that and go, one person, 
You know, it, it implies to all, but again, it's referring to a singular. So, to be an offspring of Abraham, you got to be in Christ. That's, that's Paul's message. You don't need to add anything. You don't need to obey this or that. You got to be united to the one true offspring, the one through whom the nations will really be blessed. That's Jesus. Now, Paul was a master at thinking what his opponents are going to say and responding to their objections. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know if anyone else does this. Maybe I'm just the worst. But, you know, sometimes, you know, if Lacey and I are in a little bit of a disagreement, you know, I might go, okay, when we talk, I'm going to say this, okay? And then she's going to follow that up with this, okay? But then after that, I say this, okay? And that's a good point, and then, you know, game over. Um, which, it, you know, it never works out that way, right? Um, but that's a little bit of what Paul is doing here, okay? He's not there. He's not talking to these Judaizers. He's not, you know, rubbing shoulders with the Galatians. He's elsewhere. So he's having to proactively go, when I say this, what are they going to think about? Let me respond to their response because I know they're going to have this objection. So again, 15 through 16, he's making the case Man, it's about Jesus. He's the fulfillment. You've got to be united to Christ. And he's going, well, they know their Bible. They know Genesis. They know Exodus. They're going to bring up, well, then, man, what's, what's the point of that? The law that God gave Moses. Like, if you're saying it's all about Jesus, then why, why, why would God even do that? So we go to verses 17 and 18, because, again, Paul knew they're going to have that objection. So he goes ahead and he brings it up. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. It doesn't mean Genesis 12 is off. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, your works, your performance, what you can do, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So again, it's, it's this tension of well, God did later on, 430 years after the Genesis 12 account, give this law, give this sort of, hey, you are supposed to do these things. There is a certain way you're supposed to live. Here are my commandments. Is it about keeping that or is it about God and his faithfulness and his promise? So John Calvin speaks to this well. Should be a quote coming up soon. Go ahead and read it. <coughs> Let us carefully remember... The reason why in comparing the promise with the law, so again, well, well, what's at stake here? The establishment of the one overturns the other. The reason is that the promise has respect to faith and the law to works. Faith receives what is freely given, but to, but to works a reward is paid. And he immediately adds, God gave it to Abraham, not by requiring some sort of compensation on his part, but by the free promise, for if you view it as conditional, the word gave would be utterly inapplicable. So, we'll take a pause there. Lots of maybe confusing things there. If you're not too familiar with your Bible, maybe you're not super familiar with Christianity. Let me just boil it down, Durham, summer 2022, right here in this room, okay? How do you think you can be saved? That's what's at stake here, okay? That's the question that's being asked. Are you, am I, tempted to add things to the gospel? Like the 
the Judaizers did. Well, yeah, it's faith in Jesus, but you also got to fill in the blank. So, can it really be true? Can it really be true that if I repent of my sins, trust in Jesus, finish work on my behalf, that I can be saved? That I can have a relationship with God that I was intended for and you were intended for it? Because, friends, that's the gospel. That's what we're not supposed to add to. That's the good news. And it seems a little too good to be true, right? I mean, it, there, there has to be something else. So, Francis, maybe some of you might think, well, I've done too much bad in my life. I, I, I've, I've hurt people. I've whatever. I, I, I just, I can't accept that. That's it's too easy. Or maybe you're kind of on the other end. And like the Galatians, you're going, okay, sure. But now I, you know, I really got to get my act together. You know, I have, I have faith in Christ, but like, man, I need to start saying the right things and reading the right books and put on a happy face. And, you know, I just got fired, but I'm blessed. Praise the Lord. And it's like, no. Friends, verses 15 through 18 is trying to free you from that. It's trying to free you from any sort of performance or legalism or things that you think you need to do to make your salvation enough. As if Jesus needs some help, right? He doesn't. So we don't add to the gospel. We don't put requirements on our salvation that the Lord himself does not put on it. And the invitation is simple. The gospel simply is this. Two verses that I always use to explain the gospel, both in Romans. They'll be on the screen. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Quick Bible study. What you earn because of your sin, which means you just haven't been perfect, is death. Okay? Has, any, has anyone been perfect? No? Okay. Well, according to Romans 6, guess what? You've earned death. But there is a free gift that gives you eternal life, even though you and I deserve eternal death. And how does that come? Through Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. There is a free gift offered to you of life when you deserve death. And there's nothing about you in that verse. Romans 10, 9, a little bit later, Paul says this very simply. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 10 expands and says, and you better start doing this. No, it doesn't. It goes to another kind of line of thought from Paul. Okay, there's, there's no qualifier after that. It's if you confess and believe, you'll be saved. It's a free gift. Offer it to any who would trust in Jesus Christ. And again, so this is how you become an offspring of Abraham. Not by the law, not by a sign of the covenant. It's by trusting in and following the one true offspring. And so again, just want to ask you this morning, what have we added to the gospel? Where have we taken that message that I just did for the last two minutes and gone, yeah, but they're also, you just think it's, it's somewhat about your performance. It's somewhat about what you do. Because I think if we're honest, when we read this, we can think, how can they be so foolish? You know, like these people came in like, come on, man. 
I'll contend you and I have the same problem and we fight on the same battlefield every single day. Does God really love me unconditionally? Is it really based on Jesus' finished work? Or is it kind of based on my performance? I think if we're honest, all of us are asking that question all the time. So that's the first question. Don't worry, the second question is pretty brief. Second and final question. So then what's the purpose of the law? Right? I just hopefully laid out clearly, it's a free gift. You respond in faith. It's not a result of works. And again, Paul, he's, he's a master. He knows. Then they're going to go, well then, does that just mean Christians should live how, however? Does that just mean, you know, God clearly called them to live a certain way, right? Didn't he? You know, right? You know, on, on the tablet, the commands. So again, we get to verse 19. So verse 19, the law here, it, it defines itself to some degree. It says, well, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, which again, Paul is interpreting as Jesus. And it was put in place to the angels by an intermediary, Moses. So to some degree, it was added because of transgressions. So to some degree, Paul is saying, well, there was so much wicked behavior, there was so much sin that there needed to be some sort of encouraging righteous behavior, encouraging good behavior, and you know, condemning immoral, unrighteous behavior. So you know, there's, there's the Ten Commandments, which hopefully are meant to do that. But here's what you got to understand. It was meant to encourage behavior that is reflective of children of Abraham, not how you become a child of Abraham. Does that make sense? So it's this idea of from their identity, not for their identity. So to use some of the law's examples, not putting other gods before God and not stealing or lying or murdering or any of the commandments. It was not a checklist. And if you do this, you can be a child of God. It's because you're a child of God, you ought to act this way. This is how the people of the Abrahamic covenant conduct themselves. How do they live? They're, they were supposed to be a holy nation. What does that mean? It means they were supposed to be different. It means they were supposed to be different from everybody else. How do we make ourselves different? You live this way. You, you don't lie. You don't steal. You don't murder. You don't bear false testimony against your neighbor. Because everyone else is doing that, not us. And you might say, well, di well, didn't Jesus say he came to fulfill the law? He did. Matthew 5, verse 17. Absolutely, it says that. So to some degree, you're right in thinking, well, okay, Jesus has already come. He's fulfilled the law. But then that doesn't mean it has no place in the life of a Christian. It does, however, mean the law cannot save you, okay? Which is what verse 21 is trying to make crystal clear. Verse 21 says this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So the law can't give life. It can't give righteousness. It's powerless to do so. But again, that doesn't mean it should just be cast off to the side. I would say certainly there are things like the ceremonial laws, the civil laws. Again, those have been fulfilled in Jesus. You know, we do live in a different society and culture where there's not the same, you know, cleanliness laws, things like that. But again, here we're talking about the, the moral laws, the, the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, how, how are we to think about those? Well, one thought would be Jesus actually expands on them 
So if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, for example, he says, you know, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, that's murder. Jesus would also say, you've heard it said that if you lust after another woman, you know, that's, or that you shouldn't commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I say to you, if you lust after another woman in your heart, that's adultery. So to some degree, we see obviously Jesus holding it up and going, I'm actually adding to it. I'm, I'm actually putting a, a harder standard, so to speak, on it than even though the law did. But two examples that I think will hopefully land the plane of how, how should you think about the law? What, 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 what does this mean? And Galatians is going to expand on this as well. So this isn't the only sermon where you'll hear how to deal with this. So one. The law then, I've heard it described, and I think it's good, as an x-ray, okay? An x-ray can reveal you have a problem, but it offers no solution, right? You got to look to the doctor. You got to look to the PT, whatever, because the x-ray just says, we got a problem. That leg's broken, you know? But the x-ray doesn't magically say, and guess what? Here's the solution, you know? It's like, no, that's, that's why you... Pay the doctor or whoever to go, okay, here's what we're going to do. We, we, we see you have a problem. Here's what we're going to do. The law is meant to be like that in your life. It's meant to some degree to make you go, I don't keep all of God's commands. I need, I, if, if I believe the Bible, that means I'm not righteous. It actually means I'm a sinner. Which means if I want to have a relationship with God, if I want to have righteousness, I need it from outside of myself. Because I cannot produce it. I need a solution. And obviously, friends, Jesus Christ is the solution. The law, to some degree, is meant to make you go, you have a problem. You need a solution. Can't come from you. And I even just wonder this morning if some of you have, have never even taken that step. <laughs> if you've never even taken that step to go, I need, if I want to have a relationship with God, it can't be about me. Because I, I, I can't earn my way there. I'm not good enough. Matthew 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he has become accountable to all of it. Put them together. If you haven't been flawlessly perfect your whole life in thought and deed, if you've messed up one time, the Bible would say you're a sinner. You're in need of a savior. You need righteousness and it can't come from you. So that's one role of the law in your life. Second role, a more exciting one. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, we have a two-year-old daughter named Ruth. If you know anything about her, she's full of life, energy. She's wild. Um, would I be a good parent if I just put, you know, if Lacey and I put no rules on her life, no parameters, she could just live however she wants. You know, I think... Hopefully, most of you in here would go, no, that's actually not good parenting for you to do that. For instance, right now, no matter you know, what we give her, Lacey can make something incredible. You know, we give it to her in her little, her little plate, and she just kind of pushes it away a little bit and goes, ice cream, please. You know, she wants ice cream, please. Um, and she just says that, you know, two or three times. Again, it doesn't matter what it is. She wants ice cream. Would we be good parents, right? If we just gave her ice cream, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every time. Because, well, she's asking, and she's asking nicely, you know. Um, no, right? Obviously, as a parent, there's an element of, I know you want that, 
but because I love you, because I want to actually give you life, because I actually want to give you joy, I'm going to say no to you. And, and, and I know, you know, her little two-year-old brain doesn't get it, but obviously we know if that's all you eat, you're not going to get the nutrients you need. You know, your teeth are going to have cavities. Your, your stomach's going to hurt. You know, it's not going to go how you want it to go, Ruth, if you just eat like that. But catch this. This is huge. Her listening to our rules, what we're asking her to do, what we're not asking her to do, it's not a condition upon which she gets to stay in our house. Right? It's not a checklist to see, let's see if she is going to stay at the dinner table or not. How's she do today? She, was she nice to Roman? Did she always do whatever she was supposed to do? There's nothing that she could do that could make her not be my little girl and I'm her dad. Because my love for her has no bearing on her actions. It's not conditional. She's in my family. I love her. But catch this, and this is what our culture doesn't get. That doesn't mean I don't want her to live a certain way. That does not mean there aren't rules and things that Lacey and I would put in place that I want her to listen to. Okay, so it can exist simultaneously, even though it sounds crazy. I love her unconditionally. No matter what she does, she's my daughter. I'll take her in any day. But buddy, I need you to listen to us. I need you to be nice to your brother. I need you to do these certain things. Not, not to restrict your life, to enhance it, to make it better. Trust us, we're parents that want your joy. We want life for you. I think any parents in this room can testify. Those things can coexist. You can love unconditionally, but you can want them to live a certain way. Because you know it's better for them. If you're in Christ, God is your father. You're in his family. So yes, you're loved unconditionally because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Again, your performance does not earn you any sort of more righteousness. But you could look at God's character and go, he loves me. He wants, he wants joy from my life. He wants... He wants me to live a life. So guess what? Spoiler alert. Your life will be better if you don't lie all the time. If you're not constantly trying to cover up. Your life will be better if you're content with what you have. And if you're not always coveting what other people have. Your life will be better. And I could go through every commandment, right? And go, actually, if you do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to a good life, you know? It's good if you don't murder someone, right? <laughs> Good if you don't hate someone in your heart. That's, yes, two thumbs up. Want that for Ruth. But again, we, we don't view it as, if I do this, maybe I earn my spot. Your spot's secure if you're in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean you should just throw off how God would have you live. So let me end this morning by this simple paragraph. Anyone who is in Christ is a child of Abraham. You're a part of that covenant made so many years ago. Jesus is the offspring. He's the seed. And we don't need to add anything to the gospel. He doesn't need our help. The law then can't earn us salvation. It's actually meant to open our eyes to help us go, I need a savior. I need some help. And if we look to ourselves, we have no hope at eternal life. And if maybe this morning, if, if you're hearing this and you thought, I don't know if I've ever really trusted in Jesus 
for my hope of salvation. I think I've kind of been looking to myself for my own righteousness. Let me invite you this morning to give up, to throw in the white towel, because you're never going to do it. Christ is offering you the free gift of eternal life. Will you take it? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you that we don't need to add to it. Thank you that uh, it's not a performance-based religion because we would fail, Lord. I would fail if it were about how good I am and how awesome I can be that day or whatever. Lord, just pray for people in this room. I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know where they're at. You do. Lord, pray that you would help people to see the freedom in the gospel. Also pray that you would help people to see your heart, your character, that you love them, that you do want them to live a certain way, but not in a way that they earn your performance, but in a way that they walk in in faith because they love you, because they trust you, because you're their father. So God, pray you would be glorified in this time. Pray that you would accomplish your purposes because you have them. And pray that in Jesus, your holy and perfect name. Amen.